Um, Lord, as we, we come now to think about your word, help us to see the importance of it in our lives. Um, Lord, we pray that you will speak to us all now. Amen. Um, as I, I said uh, earlier on, it feels like a long time um, since we, we last met here for, for the first part of our, our Reformation 500 series. I, I think it was pretty much about a month ago tonight. Um, and on that night, we, we thought about what the Reformers uh, came to discover, rediscover, about justification. Um, how we are justified, how we are made right before God. We, we looked at some sections of, of Romans, and Richie, who was speaking that night, chatted to us about how we are saved through faith in what God has already done through Jesus' death and resurrection. And not through any goodness or works that we do. As nothing that we can do in our own strength can bring us anywhere near the holiness of our God. Now, I feel like I have to give you a bit of a, a, bit of a disclaimer right at the beginning of this particular one. Um, most of these talks uh, will be about or around different areas of Christian belief or how we're made right, uh, how we're made right with God, sin, grace, what happened on the cross. We're going to look at a, a bit of the history around them, uh, what the Reformation rediscovered about these areas, but we're also going to be delving into what the Bible says on these issues and what all that means for us today. Tonight's going to be a little bit different. We're going to be taking a bit of a step back tonight. And instead of getting stuck into a particular Bible passage or passages, we're going to be taking a big picture view of what the Reformation rediscovered about the Bible in general. Now hopefully it will be very biblically grounded, um, even if we don't get into too many specific verses or or passages. And I hope you'll find it interesting. But I I do also hope that you'll find it a bit of an encouragement uh, and maybe a bit of a challenge as we think about the very word of God and our attitude towards it. Also, I think tonight's going to dovetail pretty well with what Christoph was talking about this morning on choosing the word of life. Um, You'd almost think we planned it that way. We absolutely didn't. Uh, It may well have been planned from on high, but it certainly wasn't planned that way in the church office. It just, just happened to all line up. But that line from, from Deuteronomy 32, Obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words for you. They are your life. Contained in this book are not just idle words, but the word of life. Why? Because this book contains the word of God. The words that brought the universe into existence. The words that breathed life into mankind's nostrils. The the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. This word is precious and powerful. And the reformers came to recognize that. And maybe we need to remind ourselves of that again today. I think the whole area of of Reformation thought around the Bible boils down to a few key areas. The authority of the Bible, which is where we're going to put our focus tonight. Then the source of the Bible and the use of the Bible. Now those three titles are a massive oversimplification of what was going on back then. But I think they're they're helpful, broad terms as we take very much a whistle-stop tour through the issues that they faced. And what that might mean for us sitting here tonight. So let's think for a wee while about the authority of the Bible, the authority of Scripture. 
Let me give you a bit of a background to this. So, right from the early church up to medieval times, the Bible was seen as the only reliable source of Christian truth. And that's, that's biblical, it's biblically based. Psalm 119.89 says, Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Luke 16.17 says, It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, And we, we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is. The word of God, which is at work in you who believe. When the church were seeking answers, they turned to scripture. And on areas where the Bible didn't seem to directly speak, the church had the role of trying to discern the most biblical answer. But these answers were never held in the same regard as scripture. They were always secondary. During the 14th and 15th centuries, that all began to change. The traditions of the church began to take a more more prominent role. There was assumed to be an unwritten tradition dating right back to the first apostles that added to the Bible and provided authoritative truth on the issues on which the Bible was silent. Truth equal to what the Bible provided. At the Council of Trent, which was a reforming council of the the Catholic Church, set up in response to the Reformation in 1546, they stated, All saving truths and rules of conduct are contained in the written books and in the unwritten traditions received from the mouth of Christ himself or from the apostles themselves. Over time, this came to mean that the Pope and his bishops became the ultimate source of truth in the church And this actually continues to this day. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, the official statement of Catholic belief, says this. As a result, the church to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted, so the church are the only ones who can tell you what the Bible is really saying, does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone, But scripture and tradition must be accepted and honoured with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. So man-made traditions and God's word are equal to one another and only the church can properly interpret the Bible. I was chatting to a girl who goes to Gospel in the City, um, the the Wednesday lunchtime ministry that that Sam Bostock uh, heads up and I'm helping him out with this year. She was saying she's from a Catholic background and and recently came to faith. Has been talking to a number of her, her friends, her Catholic friends, about what God has been doing in her life. She's received a pretty mixed response, but one story she told me um, struck a chord is that I was coming to think about this whole area. Her chat led to one of her friends starting to read the Bible for himself. He'd been a devout Catholic for about 20 years, uh, but had never tried reading the Bible. And he totally fell in love with it. It was all he wanted to do, to read the very words of his God. He started running a Bible study for his friends, and it started to really take off. His enthusiasm for the word was infectious. And it wasn't long before his priest came to have a word with him. He asked him to stop his Bible study and to be very careful about reading the Bible for himself. 
I'd imagine this, the church he went to was quite a high church as far as Catholic churches go. He said really he, he should be getting his understanding of the word through the teachings of the church. To read the Bible outside of that would lead him to believe all sorts of crazy notions. And if he really wanted to teach the Bible, then he should really think about becoming a priest. The idea of the Bible or the church having ultimate authority caused massive issues for Martin Luther. You see, when Luther started this journey, when he posted those 95 theses to the church door, he had no intention of breaking away from the church or anything like that. He just hoped to start a discussion that would lead to meaningful reform within the Catholic Church, or the Church at that stage. All he wanted to do was go back to the Bible. And it was really over this issue of the authority of Scripture versus the authority of the Church that Luther began to realise that the reform that was needed couldn't take place within the current Church. Because the church didn't see the Bible as being the only source of truth. One story that highlights this. In 1519, Luther debated one of the the leading theologians of the Catholic Church. A guy called Johann Eck. And I don't know if you've ever had a, a debate or a discussion or an argument with someone from a different viewpoint. It can be tough. It can almost be like going to war sometimes. And Luther must have felt this way because he showed up to this debate with 200 students armed with battle axes. They play play no part in the debate, uh, by the way. And I imagine they were probably there to counteract the fact that at this time, the the church had had a nasty habit of burning people that they didn't agree with. And Luther at this stage was someone that they really didn't agree with. So they came to this debate... And Luther was hoping to use it as an opportunity to talk about what the New Testament had to say about justification, grace, sin, all those things we're going to discuss in this series. However, Eck took a a different tact, accusing Luther of pushing the same views as a man called John Huss. Huss's views had been condemned by the church about 100 years before, and funny enough, he had been burned at the stake. For the whole morning, Luther denied that he held the same position as this guy Huss. When things broke up for lunch, Luther went to the library to read up on who this guy actually was and what he actually believed. At the beginning of the afternoon session, to everyone's amazement and astonishment, Luther declared, Among the articles of John Huss, I find many which are plainly Christian and evangelical, which the universal church cannot condemn. Now this was massive. Because for the first time, Luther saw the problem. He believed that the Bible was saying some very clear things. Things that were backed up by other theologians like Huss and by church history. But the church had condemned those things as wrong. Luther found himself having to choose between the authority of the Bible and the authority of the church which were in direct conflict. And for Luther, it was an easy choice. One of the key principles of the Reformation um, was sola scriptura, or scripture alone. It, It simply sums this idea up that the Bible is the ultimate authority. 
That doesn't mean that we can't use other things to inform our theology, our thinking. It's not wrong to read a Tim Keller book. The reformers used past theologians. They used church history. They used their own experience and reason. But when there was a choice to be made, it was always the answer of scripture that carried authority. Alistair McGrath, in his book, Reformation Thought, he puts it like this. If the reformers dethroned the Pope, they enthroned scripture. Um, Luther's own description of the Reformation, he said this. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with friends, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. We often go forward by looking back. And this is what happened at the Reformation. The reformers were not trying to create something new. They weren't setting out to change the world. All they wanted to do was go back to the Bible. But going back to the Bible changed the world forever. And it continues to do so. But there was a problem with this back to the Bible approach. To put it simply, the Bible was wrong. The Bible they used at that point was based on a 4th to 5th century translation um, by a guy called Jerome. It was known as the, it became known as the Latin Vulgate. The problem was that over the years, many different versions of this uh, Latin Vulgate began to, be, uh, began to exist. Not translated from the original Hebrew and Greek, but based off Jerome's translation or translations of other translations. And aspects of it began to become twisted and mistakes started to creep in. One version which was created in 1226 was the Paris version. It was a Bible written with no church backing to make money for the publishers. And it really it contained a number of really obvious mistakes. Despite this, because of the influence of the people behind it, it soon became the go-to version of the Bible. And it still heavily influences Catholic Bibles today. So medieval theologians were stuck using a bad commercial edition of an already faulty Latin translation of the Bible. Um, John Wycliffe, who you, you'll probably maybe have heard of before, um, an early reformer, uh, an early character in the Reformation, who was the first person to translate the Bible into English against the wishes of the church, he had to use this version to do that. And that's probably the way things would have remained. But a movement began known as Back to the Sources. It was a group who wanted to read accurate versions of classic Greek and Roman texts in their original languages, including the Bible. In 1516, um, a guy called Erasmus published a Greek New Testament, and the differences between it and the Vulgate were pretty stark in places. From that time on, Jesus began to preach... Do penance, for the kingdom of heaven is near. You're, you're probably not familiar with that version of Matthew 4.17. Because it's not what Matthew wrote. But it is what the Vulgate says. 
Erasmus was able to show that instead of referring to a sacrament of penance, Jesus was talking about a radical change of direction. Do penance should be translated repent. Or a Christmas example. In Luke one twenty eight, the Vulgate describes Mary as being full of grace. It implies that Mary was like a, like a reservoir of grace that good Christians can access. You could say that for medieval Catholicism, grace was a bit like a can of Red Bull. It was like an energy drink. It pumps you up spiritually. You have to keep filling yourself up. And Mary was a bit like a drinks dispenser. You put your request into Mary and you get some grace back. And this is where that whole idea of, of praying to Mary comes from. Erasmus, however, said that Luke one twenty eight should really be translated favoured one. Mary was not a dispenser of grace, but the recipient of God's grace, just like us. As the Bible was, was seen in its original language, and, and that original version was then beginning to be translated into various languages, more and more people began to see some of the issues with medieval Catholic theology. And more and more people began to see that the authority of the church and the authority of the Bible were actually in conflict, not harmony. One more small point that I I don't want to dwell on, but I think we we need to mention if we're talking about what is and isn't Scripture. How many books are there in the Bible? That's that's worrying. (laughs) Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Bill. You get to be an elder. You get to continue to be an elder. Um, 66. How many books are there in the Catholic Bible? Does anybody know? We don't have Richie here tonight. To... <laughs> There's 73. The extra books are known as the Apocrypha. You've, you've maybe heard of that before. They, they come at the end of the Old Testament. They were found in Greek and Latin versions like the Vulgate, but they weren't in the original Hebrew versions because they were added later. Although they were, and actually still are, used by Jews, and they were used by the early Christians, the Jews do not consider the Apocrypha to be part of the canon of their scripture. The Reformers recognized that they had some devotional value like any other Christian book, But they were convinced that they were not part of God's word as God had originally given it to his people. So why does that matter? Well, the Apocrypha is is a good read. Um, It's it's well worth having a look at. It's, It's interesting. But when it is considered to be scripture, then it is considered to be, as we read in 2 Timothy earlier on, it is considered to be God breathed. It is considered to be God's infallible word. Taking it that way has led to some strange beliefs, like praying for the dead, the belief in purgatory, views that are not supported anywhere else in scripture. And then finally, and very briefly, I want to say a little about the use of the Bible. One of the key things that came through the Reformation was that the Bible was no longer kept away from the people. The true Bible was put into the hands of the lay people and increasingly read and preached in languages they could understand. And, you know, you guys know something of the difficulty of language barriers with Richie. Sorry. (laughs) Glad he's not here now. Um, But that didn't mean that it was a free-for-all. 
People interpreting the Bible however they liked. The reformers valued the history of interpretation. If you see something in a Bible passage that 2,000 years of scholarship has never noticed before, then you should probably have another look. Look at the verses around it. Look at the context it's written in. Their other concern was people using the Bible to back up or prove whatever point they wanted to make by pulling verses or parts of verses out of their context. I've heard this described as the the old MacDonald method. Here's a verse, there's a verse, everywhere a verse, verse. They wanted people to treat the Bible with the respect it deserves as the very word of our God. Now that doesn't mean that any time someone uses a verse to prove a point they're wrong, I feel like I have to say that tonight because that's kind of what I've been doing. Um, They may well, and I hope I have, done the background work to be able to use those verses in the right context. The great thing is that you have the privilege of being able to handle this book and check. And it's important to know your Bible so that you can spot when people are twisting scripture to push their own agenda. The reformers also accepted the early councils and creeds of the church, which we still hold to today. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and later works as well, um, like the Westminster Confession of Faith. But all these things that help us to interpret Scripture properly are secondary to Scripture itself. The other important factor I just want to mention as we close is is that the Reformation saw a return or a refocus on Christ-centered teaching and preaching. For the Reformers, the Bible and Christ go together. We are saved by Christ and Christ alone. But we encounter Christ throughout the Bible. Christ is the Word incarnate, made flesh. And the Bible is the written Word. Jesus is central to the Bible, and Jesus is central to our understanding the Bible. All true interpretations of the Bible should lead us to Jesus. If you hear the Old Testament taught, and that same teaching can be used in a synagogue, then there's something wrong. The whole Bible whispers the name of Jesus. Now, I feel like I've been quite harsh um, tonight on the, on the Catholic Church. And, uh, it is in a, in a much different place today than it was in the 16th century. But significant differences in some of these key issues around the authority of, of the Bible, the source of the Bible, and the use of the Bible do still exist today. But there are also some big questions for us to think about coming out of this. I'm just going to throw some questions out at you. Things to maybe think about and dwell on and and maybe go away and think about a little bit. Is the Bible the ultimate authority in your life? Do you see it as the very words of God? Is it your life? Or does it too often gather dust on a shelf? Do you read it? Or do you read around it? Christian books and podcasts and videos about the Bible and theology are great. But they are no substitute for reading God's word for yourself. We need to get the balance of that right. And that's something I I struggle with. Have you made sure that you have a strong translation of the Bible that goes back to the original sources? 
so that you can have confidence that it's God's word you're reading and not man's word? Do you look for Christ in in every passage you read? Do you see his name whispered and sometimes shouted throughout all of scripture? Like that guy we talked about earlier who discovered he had had years of religion, but whose life changed when he discovered the Bible. Are we excited to read these words? Do we think it's important? Do we see it as a privilege? These words from God, these words that bring life and light into darkness. These words that never return empty, but always accomplish their purpose, as Isaiah 55.11 says. Like the reformers before us, in what ways do we need to go back to the Bible? Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us to try and figure out how to follow you um, on our own. But Lord, you have given us your very word. The words that bring us life. The words that, that created the universe. You have given us those words. Lord, we thank you for what your word contains. The promises that you have given to us. Lord, we thank you for um, how the, the Bible whispers the name of Jesus throughout. Lord, we thank you for that it is um, your rescue plan for humanity. We thank you for how it shows how much you love us. We thank you for how it shows how we can be saved through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news of Jesus. Lord, as we, we come to think about you lowering yourself into human form, coming to earth to dwell with us. Lord, we thank you um, for what you did for us. Lord, we thank you that you came to earth um, in in such awful conditions to live uh, the perfect life, the life that we could never live, to die the death um, that we deserve so that we might have life. Lord, we thank you that we can gather around your word this Christmas, and that in it, Lord, we can find hope. Lord, we thank you for your word. Amen.